we go to Shakespeare sort of prepared to see something like substantial, something of cultural significance. And then we see like, oh, like this is showing us back to ourselves a little bit obliquely through these stories. I have heard people say that they feel like Hamilton, even just the difference between 2016 and 2020, the mood in the country feels so different now. I think there's something really um, healthy, socially healthy about there being something that everybody can have in common. Welcome to the Theatre Art Life podcast and hello. We're putting the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the globe, the culture creators and the backstage masters. My name is Anna Rob, And my name is Anna Aguilera. This episode is kind of special to me because you guys must know by now that I listen to a lot of podcasts and among of them, uh, one of my favorites called The Ministry of Ideas. And I was listening to it and it's not really about art, it's about ideas in general, as the name says. And uh, there's this one that it's called Stealing the Canons. And I was fascinated by it and the idea how it took Shakespeare, an author which I don't particularly like, and explain me kind of why I should like it or consider liking it at least. And then compare it to the work Lin-Manuel Miranda has done with Hamilton. And it just got me hooked and I wanted to know more. So I went on and tried to, you know, chase down Sacred Davis, who's the, the guy who hosts the podcast. Guys, you should listen to it. And then he said, your idea is brilliant. I'm glad you like it, but you should talk to someone else. That, the person who actually wrote this, this episode. Her name is Maria Devlin Mechner, and she's with us today. And we're going to talk about the role canons play in the arts. Wonderful. So Maria Devlin Mechner received her PhD in English literature from Harvard University, where she did work for HarvardX, helping create Stephen Greenblatt's online courses on Shakespeare. After graduation, she worked as a high school English teacher, a writer for the online education company Lit Up Charts, and a writer and producer for the podcast Ministry of Ideas, founded by Zachary Davis at the Harvard Divinity School. Since 2020, she's been the creator and producer of Shakespeare for All, an online course run by Himalaya Learning, designed to provide an engaging, accessible introduction to Shakespeare's life, poetry, and plays. Maria, welcome to the show. Thank you both so much for having me. What an amazing experience here. So you're the expert on Shakespeare, right? Oh, I'm a, a lower member in a community of many, many people. And it's a pleasure to see online just how many it is. So let's start by telling you, telling us about you and, and, and why Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> I like uh, going back to that story because it kind of rejuvenates my excitement every time I think about it. Um, I'd always loved English. I started college at UNC Chapel Hill as an English major. And I, I got to do an honors seminar my sophomore year that happened to be on Shakespeare, um, which I was fine with. But by the end of that semester, I was hooked. I actually, this makes me sound like Hermione Granger, but I came out of my final exam feeling sad that you know there was no more Shakespeare. But of course there was. I got to go to, uh, to England that summer on a study abroad trip. And we saw I think two live Shakespeare performances a week, sometimes more for six weeks. And by the end of that, I just felt like 
this is it. Just just keep it coming. I want to do more of this. And so I, I majored in Renaissance literature, the era in which Shakespeare wrote, and then went on to graduate school in English, focusing on the same topic, Shakespearean drama. And through graduate school, um, I loved reading these plays, studying them, and I particularly had the desire to be a, a certain kind of a scholar who'd have public-facing work, who'd be sharing these plays and trying to kind of share, provoke an interest and a love for them in other people, um, you know, beyond the academy. And so part of that was what led me to want to become a high school English teacher, where I got to teach Romeo and Juliet to freshmen and Anthony and Cleopatra to seniors, and also publishing in you know, popular magazines and uh, the dream of getting to work on the podcast Ministry of Ideas, which I think a lot of academics wish they could have this kind of platform, where you have something that, an idea that just seizes you and excites you, and you get to share it with a big audience of people sort of in a relatively rapid way, in a way that also connects to current events and kind of brings out the relevance of what you're looking at. So that was why I was excited to do the episode on Shakespeare and uh, Hamilton, because Shakespeare, you know, as much as many people love him, he does also stand for a certain kind of a thing in culture, you know, like the bard, you know, great literature with a capital G and a capital L, something that can be a little bit intimidating more than inviting sometimes. And so in this podcast, I wanted to do what I'd like to do in my Shakespeare course as well, which was kind of show how Shakespeare can be inviting, how Shakespeare is trying to sort of bring the audience in rather than keep him out, which I think is sometimes the popular idea about Shakespeare. Shakespeare is obviously the one of the most infamed, uh, you know, playwrights and, and uh, you know, many countries have done various iterations and performances and modern stagings and film adaptations. So what is it that makes Shakespeare so profound to you, like in terms of his relevance to now and historically and why him? So that's a great question. And I've been asking that question to scholars kind of all summer um, while I've been interviewing them for this course. There's, there's sort of different categories of answers. Broadly speaking, there's sort of intrinsic um, reasons and there's extrinsic reasons. And the extrinsic reasons, um, that's sort of like the less pleasant side of the story. The fact that, you know, when the British were expanding their empire, when they were colonizing territories around the world, they brought Shakespeare with them and, you know, taught Shakespearean schools as kind of a process of, you know, acculturation, trying to make people in the colonies more British. That's part of the reason why he had sort of a global reach. He was the national poet and an emblem of nationalism. And that was, um, that's a part of, of Shakespeare representative of, you know, empire and colonialism that people sort of rightly often um, are reacting against. But then there are also the, the intrinsic reasons. And one of these, um, a friend of mine, Jeff Wilson, put it really well in an article that he wrote about Shakespeare's uh, canonization. He talked about Shakespeare's irony as being kind of like a pathway to interpretive freedom. That in drama, you don't have an authoritative narrator the way that you do in some kinds of poetry, some kinds of novels. You have different voices. You have different voices, different perspectives, different characters telling you what they think about the situation from their point of view. And that a lot of the professors bring out that this was actually how Shakespeare was educated. This was a common way of teaching, of training students to think and debate in the Renaissance classroom. You were just, you were assigned a position in a debate and it wasn't about defending what you thought. It was about trying to see things just from the point of view that you were given. And this is what Shakespeare's plays do particularly well. They allow all of the characters their own kind of stance or position. And in that way, it gives the audience the freedom to take their own stance or position because the author isn't coming out and telling you, yes, Brutus, Brutus was right to assassinate Julius Caesar or Macbeth was a monster just the way Malcolm says he is. Um, it's saying 
all right, you've gotten all this information, you've gotten a really compelling story, what do you think about it? That's been a really uh, consistent thread in what the professors have said about Shakespeare and what draws them to this playwright. And it also accounts, I think, for why there continue to be so many new productions of Shakespeare all over the world. It's not just because he's famous. I mean, that's part of it, it's that people like going to things that they know. And so it's kind of a, a circle where the more Shakespeare gets performed, the more famous he is. But what sustains all those new productions is the fact that they are so interpretively open, um, that you can have a, a picture, you know, a production of Coriolanus that says, yes, we need a strong autocratic government, or no, we need to hand the government over to the people. And both of those things are supported by the text. That's what I think enables Shakespeare's freedom, the interpretive freedom of the audience, and what makes it possible to keep going to him and still finding it fresh. So how do we connect, I mean, through text and these ideas or freedom of interpreting it, but how does it actually connect to a commoner or like me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I was watching a, a, a Zoom webinar, one of the, the lovely things about quarantine this summer with a wonderful actress named Harriet Walter. And I sent in a question about how, how do you do Shakespeare in schools with younger students where this doesn't feel like what they most immediately connect to or care about? And, and she said, well, one thing you can try is just like, don't, don't start with the whole play or you know, trying to master the whole thing. Just go to certain parts of it because that's actually how Shakespeare has been read quite frequently through the centuries is people would take out certain speeches and they'd go into anthologies and school readers and people would memorize just these speeches. And out of context, even they might just say something to you and it might be different than what you know they said to the character in the player, which Shakespeare meant them to say, but they might still speak to you. There might be something about that language. And I think that's another thing about Shakespeare when he wrote, they weren't aiming for realism to capture the way that people actually talk in ordinary conversation. It's, it's artistic, metaphorical language, and that can feel kind of off-putting at first, since this isn't how we normally speak. But in a way, that kind of gives you something to sort of dig into and keep thinking about, this, this suggests something to me. What does it mean? Let me look a little further. Like the line when Macbeth says in his soliloquy, you know, but here upon this bank and shoal of time, we jump the life to come. Jump the life to come. Like... If you're being asked on a school exam, what does that mean? You're going, oh my God, why couldn't you have just said it more clearly? But if you're sort of just wanting to, to think about something <laughs> in the way that my sister once told me she likes to think about what Elton John's lyrics mean, the life to come, what is that? Does it mean my future, the person I'm going to become? Does it mean the future of this kingdom? If I kill the king, does it mean the afterlife? Does it mean what God's going to think of me? Is it the possible lives I could lead, the possible persons I could be, depending on what I do at this moment. Shakespeare's plays are full of that kind of language. So I feel like if we take that advice and just start by saying like, All right, don't worry right away if you've gotten the quote right meaning, just find something that seems interesting to you that you could kind of turn over in your mind and think, yeah, I feel this way sometimes. Sometimes I feel like I'm on the precipice of something and going, gosh, this is a big decision. Here, I'm going to do something that might make me jump the life to come. Now, whatever that means. So I feel like, and this is what our, our wonderful um, Professor Emma Smith said, don't think of it as being an exam. Don't think of it as a chore. Just think about it as something that's going to, going to work for you in some way. <laughs> so that's how I would suggest, you know, coming to it if you're not sort of, you know, already a Shakespeare academic or something. 
I would agree too because I think that's really the way that I was exposed to Shakespeare and, and I agree it can be overwhelming to look at a whole play and look through all of the, you know, but when you take a section it's almost like a poem or a monologue, right? And so then if you take it and dissect it into that, you know, and, you know, I've skirted around Shakespeare and a couple of Shakespeare things in my past historically but I have to ask you a question because it bugs me and maybe you'll know, maybe you don't, but I once saw an article and I don't know if it's true about the fact that in the old, when Shakespeare wrote, he obviously wrote in handwriting and um, there was some discussion about the, obviously the famous saying to be or not to be, that is the question, that they had misinterpreted where the common comma was in that sentence. And I don't know if you, like, and for me, because if they put it in where they thought it, it actually, he actually wrote it, it completely changes the concept context. So the comma would come after the not. So it would be to be or not, comma, to be, that is the question. And I love that, that I, it, it, it still bugs me to this day that the comma might be in the wrong spot because it changes the completely, I know this is me being a complete nerd right now, but for me it's like I actually like it in the in the version that if he said to be or not, to be is the question because it's like not whether not exists, it's how to be. And for me it resonates with me so much more than the other way. And so if they've been saying it wrong for how many years, but tell me, is there any validity to that discussion or am I just dreaming? <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's such a wonderful example. I, I actually hadn't heard about that particular issue with the comma, but there are three different texts of Hamlet. In the earliest one, it's you know, to be or not to be, I, there's the point. There are, there are these big variants. And so it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me if that is one of the big cruxes. I have a friend who's doing a wonderful podcast, To Be or Not to Be Lockdown Shakespeare, where they talk about the To Be or Not to Be monologue in every episode. And it's just amazing all the different angles you can approach it from. So I hope he'll do an episode about that comma. <laughs> yeah we need to we need to get to the bottom of this because it's totally bugging me <laughs> but like that's what I love about I guess you know your point is about that uh, that open to interpretation and because we probably don't have all of those original scripts and stuff like that we will never know and so therefore I want to see a play where they perform it in the sentence that way just to shock the audience <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that there's a production where there, there'll be room for that. You know, there's good productions of Hamlet are just going to keep coming. So, <laughs> I like your idea of taking a part. So I do like music a lot better than Shakespeare, at least. And the way I was taught opera, it was kind of the same thing. Just take an area or take a duet and just listen to that. You don't need to listen to three or nine or hours in the case of Wagner of something just take the little things and at the beginning because I really like music and I can't sit through that I was like how dare they how dare they to cut it and just take that one part but yet I did it and I enjoyed it <laughs> so I'll take your word maybe I'll come out of this actually liking Shakespeare a little bit better <laughs> Maybe I'll send along some some speeches for you to look at. I think that's a great idea to think of them being like poems. And of course, he's got a lot of wonderful short poems too. <laughs> so what's your take on the role Shakespeare played with the society and the audience and with theater as an art form? And what is this canon he broke and then said kind of thing? Yeah, so thinking about the canons that he he broke, um, so he was coming um, out of the educational culture of humanism of the Renaissance, where they were um, 
bringing back, you know, texts of ancient Greece and especially Rome. So there was a lot of literature that had become kind of common knowledge for a lot of members of his audience that he was looking at the plays of Plautus and Terence, and then the poetry of Virgil and Ovid. And then also at the same time, a lot of sort of English folk traditions um, that he was sort of remixing in all of his plays, like taking motifs and characters and plot lines that would be familiar to people and, you know, putting them in a different spin, you know, combining them, changing them in some way in his plays. And in the Canons podcast, we talk about how this was a way to invite in kind of all different members of society. And he was one of the first people in the newly born entertainment industry to have to do that because this was the first time they're in public theaters in England and they were open to every section of society. And he had to figure out a way of writing something that appealed to all different kinds of people, you know, whatever their taste, that was how he was going to succeed as a businessman, was by writing something that pleased everyone. And where that has sort of brought him um, in contemporary culture, now it, it's not that he's he's famous because, oh, he mixed up all these Roman texts we all know, it's famous because his are the plays that we all know. But in a way, I think that makes him still able to invite lots of different people in because just by virtue of his plays being so well known and performed so frequently, he's got this cultural capital where you can take an issue that's important to you and you can sort of refract it through Shakespeare. And that's a way of sort of elevating it in, into sort of the public sphere of getting people's attention about it. So, and this is one of the things we wanted to talk about also the role of live performance. This is especially something that I think that, theater companies doing live performances can do in a very sort of agile way where you have performances that are responding to urgent issues of the moment. You know, in, in 2016, there was a production of Measure for Measure, a play that's a lot about sort of sex and morality and state repression um, that was specifically responding to the controversies over bathroom laws in North Carolina. The To Be or Not To Be podcast had a great episode on performances of Hamlet that were responding to the Black Lives Matter movement and how that To Be or Not To Be speech resonates, thinking about sort of the experience of racism in America. And so now it's because that Shakespeare has become this kind of common language that we, we go to Shakespeare sort of prepared to see something like substantial, something of cultural significance. And then we see like, oh, like this is showing us back to ourselves a little bit obliquely through these stories. So whether or not you, you like Shakespeare, whether you think he should get all the attention that he does, and there's certainly things to be said on both sides, there is amount, an amount of cultural capital he has that you can kind of draw on. And many protest movements, many freedom fighters have found this to sort of draw attention and uh, a level of significance to your cause. And I think also, too, because essentially he wasn't really writing about a time-specific thing. He was more writing about universal themes, love, hate, power, you know, um, politics. And that, that in that way, most of his plays can be, even if it was, a you know, more of a fantasy one or whatever, you can then, the core theme and the narrative is founded on those relationships between people and the and that. So I think for me that's how, I don't know if you agree, that's how it's been able to be universally applied down the ages because we are still human and we still deal with politics and power and love and hate and, and those human relationships and the infrastructure around that just happens to be the story of those everyday people that he's bringing together to discuss those topics. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, the fact that He's, he's writing things that were like urgent in his time, but almost in a sort of 
necessary way. Um, it was it was dangerous to write about, you know, Elizabethan politics during the reign of Elizabeth. Like there were friends of his who were jailed, who were threatened, you know, with, with, with torture because they wrote sort of too close to home for the, the government um, censors of the plays. And so he wrote about Elizabethan politics by writing about Roman politics. He had to make it a little bit distant. And the fact that he sort of stepped back and tried to find, like, as you said, kind of the underlying archetype of the stories allows that archetype to sort of persist in a way that, you know, Julius Caesar, as the Shakespeare in the Park production of 2017 showed, remains just as close to us today as it was for Shakespeare, because it wasn't only trying, it wasn't ever trying to only be close, to only be topical. It was trying to access something that was permanent about human conflicts, conflicts in society, conflicts in an individual. And now, how do you compare this to the huge endeavor that Lin-Manuel Miranda took on at reframing and retelling the history of the United States and the way a Broadway production or a mainstream musical is cast and staged? Yeah, that, that's another great comparison because, of course, I think the way some people have put it, maybe this was Oscar Eustace, it's a story about America then, you know, told from the point of view of America now, or it's a story about America now told from the point of view of America then. It's about both at the same time, um, in the same way that by writing about England of, you know, 100 or 200 years earlier, Shakespeare was writing of the England of his day. And that also has sort of split the way that people have interpreted Hamilton. Like you've had people just saying like, this, this is a big step forward for what Broadway is going to look like in the arts that you can have this, you know, blockbuster show where almost every role is an actor of color. And that's the, that can be the new normal from now on. You have people saying, this is, this is just, you know, painting over, you know, the real shames of America's past by casting slave owners, uh, you know, African-Americans, like trying to make out that these men, like everything was just okay. They're just these heroes that we now now love. And then you had other people saying, this is one of my favorite articles. I think it was on Vox. This isn't meant to be a representation of history. This is like fan fiction of history, where you take something that you love, but then you sort of, you give it a spin um, to bring it into sort of the world you wish it was, the more perfect form which I think was just so brilliant because that's what I feel like the story of the founding fathers, you know, like is it's you know, the more perfect union. Like it's looking at not just where they were, but where they were trying to go and portraying both of those things at the same time, because where they were trying to go was at a more equal society for all of its members in a way that's represented by this casting, even as that cast is representing the people who were 200 years ago and farther away from that ideal than they wanted to be. So that idea of being able to be in two places in time at the same time and then create a conversation by virtue of that distance between them, I think is something that Shakespeare did and Lin-Manuel Miranda does uh, brilliantly. And I guess time will tell whether that is, whether that dates, you know, I, I think it, it's relevant for us now, but maybe that combining of those two philosophies and bringing, mixing it up means that it won't be dated, you know, because, you know, there's other, I guess, Broadway shows like, say, the one that comes to mind is like rent, which seems a really dated topic and and show now in in this day and age, even though it's still performed, of course. But like Shakespeare had this timelessness about his stories, and I think if if there wants to be a timelessness about a Broadway show, it needs to have that same kind of people need to hang that timelessness on it. But I I don't know. I mean, maybe you could define what that is, and maybe that's what it is. Hamilton is doing 
obviously Les Mis, obviously Phantom of the Opera, there's a timelessness about these because Les Mis is another perfect example of a struggle and, and human interaction despite it being set in a time and a place but the, the narrative of what, what the core of that, that storyline is, is is timeless. So is that what you think would then make a timeless show? Is that kind of focusing on not a particular event or time or dated or politics in that moment but more the relationships between um, people and, and, and general human issues? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because there is a way, right, in Les Mis where they kind of signal that, like, the fight that we're standing up to is meant to stand for, like, a general kind of fight against suffering against oppression um at any time um in the way you know the they sort of the cast rises up you know, you know do you hear the people saying like that could be told at any time and it's a good question about hamilton because with shakespeare there's almost no staging instructions instructions about costume anything like that and with hamilton it's like extremely extremely specific and that was part of what gave it that kind of resonance but then of course lin-manuel miranda has says like that can be changed too. He said, like, I'm looking forward to the day when there's, you know, a, a female Hamilton, you know, or maybe an all female, you know, Hamilton cast. So there's a way that a lot of us have seen it portrayed um, on stage now, but may- maybe that will change in the future. And maybe that will come through casting or something else about the show where it's still able to sort of signal what it wants to speak to us about today. But certainly that extreme sparseness in directions in Shakespeare is part of what allows the incredible multiplicity of the different kinds of productions today. I have heard people say that they feel like Hamilton, even just the difference between 2016 and 2020, the mood in the country feels so different now in a way that makes them respond to the show a little bit. And But maybe in 10 years, we'll realize that the ups and downs, Hamilton is still saying something about American identity. It'll also be interesting to see how people respond when it's in other countries. <laughs> like Lynn Manuel said, he was sitting next to King George's, you know, great, great, great you know, grandson while watching King George on stage. Um, how do they interpret it? Do they see an, an analogy between the what we think of as our story, the American story, you know, for us in America? What are the analogies in other countries? And maybe that will bring out what's universal about Hamilton. Absolutely, and because also he broke the rules by making it the way that he did, then it inadvertently hopefully allows people to break the rules further in further iterations, like you said, with an all-female cast and stuff. It's going to Australia soon, so it'll be interesting to see uh, Australia's reception to, to the show. And I think, honestly, because Disney Plus did such a wonderful um, digital capture of it. I think that's also incited a lot of enthusiasm for the show globally anyway, and even even for those who may not know and understand American history, it's a, it's a, it's a good show, right? So I have to confess that I've gone and asked my friends around the world, like, hey, is this a thing in your country or is it just because I live in the U.S. and I see everything through the U.S. lens right now? Is this a thing? And I've heard mostly Anglo countries say, yes, it is a thing. And then the non-Anglo is like, whatever, Americans. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's... It begs it to say, though, like, you know, um, do you think, uh, Maria, that there would be another playwright that has that kind of influence and longstanding um, penetration like Shakespeare? in the modern day because we're so inundated with so much information now and it's hard for people to stand out for a long period of time 
seems like it would be very difficult for somebody to have some such a impactful um, legacy like Shakespeare in the modern world. Well, I, I do agree that it seems more difficult now, and that's partly because of like the extrinsic factors that we mentioned earlier. It's not to say that there couldn't ever be anyone as, as talented as Shakespeare, but he had a 400 years you know, sort of head start um, when there weren't a lot of people on the scene. And then being <laughs> chosen for various reasons to be the national um, poet of a country that also exerted an influence around the world that I think is also unlikely to be seen again in kind of a, a homogenous cultural way. So I do, I do think that that would be um, difficult. And I, I, I was thinking about this with the show in connection to Game of Thrones, the way it's difficult to have people referred to as like monoculture now too, because it's so easy to intensely, intensely personalize and subdivide your sort of entertainment experiences, you know, the, the content that you consume. Um, just the fact that we're not all watching TV synchronously means it's harder to, for there to be someone who is reaching everyone who, who could then acquire that kind of like significance um, of cult cultural standing that Shakespeare has where it continues to be, you know, performed and referred to by such a wide cross section of society. In a way that Shakespeare's kind of got his own industry sort of built in in a way that's very self-sustaining. It doesn't mean that's something I'm not sad about. And people said that, you know, Game of Thrones might be the last show that we all watch together. I felt very sad about that because, as I also said in the Canons episode, I think there's something really um, healthy, socially healthy, about there being something that everybody can have in common. But the fact that it's asynchronous doesn't mean that we don't share it, right? Like we're sharing the Shakespeare experience in different history periods and countries and languages and versions of it. Oh, that's true. Um, and we're not going to have the same kinds of conversations about, you know, anxiously anticipating, you know, how the plot of uh, <laughs> Caesar is going to turn out in the final episode. But certainly there can be still an ongoing conversation, um, even if it's not sort of that minute by minute thing that you that you might get with um, you know, a TV series finale coming out. And that's been one of the things that I personally enjoyed about getting into Shakespeare. There might've been something a little bit accidental about him being the writer that I kind of fell in love with in college. But once I was there, I realized how lucky that was um, just because there are so many people around the world that you can carry on this conversation with. And as part of doing this course, I've gotten to meet some artists, um, you know, talk to people in, uh, in Romania and in Brazil and of course in England. And that sort of, I'm, hoping only to meet more and more people in this network. And you you guys know this from doing your podcast. That's one of the gifts that the arts give us is just something to come together over. And I think during quarantine, that's something that people were looking for and hungering for, like wanting new new shows and movies to be produced, but just enjoying being able to connect with people over what they had. So I want to dig in into your uh, theory or your thesis of steal the cannons. And I it resonates a lot with me because another very polemical character, Caso, uh, probably more of a misanthrope than many, and but equally productive probably as Shakespeare. It's probably one of the visual artists with the most paintings ever. I don't know, but his huge collection, enough to have many museums in, in Europe. Anyhow, he has this idea of Stealing like an artist. He says that an average artist or an artisan will copy, but the artist will steal, meaning that you'll take only what you think it's valuable and you'll use it 
for your intention and your artistry, right? Maybe I just saw your thesis through this idea of mine, but I want to dig in a little bit more into your thesis of stealing the canons and making them serve our purpose as artists today and to our societies today. That's great. Thank you. And stealing the canons is another one of those lines that I invite to be open to. Let's think about all the different things that this could possibly mean. And for me, it was that and since, you know, the canon wars of the 80s and 90s, um, starting with kind of anti, you know, colonial movements, you know, post-colonialism in the in 60s and 70s and English departments, people thinking that, oh my, like, what are we doing? Like, we've just been reading kind of a the same sort of fairly limited group of authors who tend to be from the same demographic. And why is that? Are there good reasons for that? Are there bad reasons? And that's sort of along with those like important and necessary critiques, there's been kind of a, a, I think, a too broad backlash against the very idea of canons that you have some people saying, well, just the idea of putting some books on a list and some books not is, is inherently saying that the books in the list are better. And that's like an anti-egalitarian thing to do. That's like, so that's bad. So we shouldn't do that. And then there's me going like, well, try being like, try being a student of literature. How do you go about that? You need to be selective in your reading. You'd have a reason for what you're reading what should that reason be? And for me, it was like, I want to, (laughs) in the same way I kind of want to watch Bridgerton because everyone's talking about it. I want to be in on the conversation. I want to read the books that other other readers have read and other writers have read so I can be part of the conversation that people have been having with each other and that they're still going to be having with each other. That that's the way to sort of enter into this community. That there's been a many, many writers responding to Shakespeare. So a good way of understanding literature in general is to look at Shakespeare. And then a lot equally sort of a good way of understanding another subgenre or another culture is to try to figure out what their canons are. Like what are the central texts that are important to this group of writers or this group of people? We were doing an episode um, on our podcast, Ministry of Ideas, about anti-racism. And we spoke with this wonderful scholar, Dr. Anika Prather, and we brought up this question of canons. And she was saying that, you know, a lot of people object to this idea. They see the canon, it's the canon or the Western canon, as something um, that's kind of like a tool of oppression. And there's a way in which it works that way. But if you steal the idea of canon and you see it in a different way, you think, it's just these group of people who got together and decided these books are important to them. And she said, white people have a canon, and black people have a canon too. Jewish people have a canon, people from China have a canon, Buddhists have a canon. And if you want to invite people in to understand your culture, a good way to do that is to say, here's our canon. Here are some of the books that you could try reading to sort of educate yourself a little bit further about something that you don't don't have maybe a strong an understanding of. And I've been seeing that a lot in different websites and different emails. Um, just for Martin Luther King Jr. Day, the Folger Library sent out um, one of their emails, just had a list of here's some great black novelists, here's some great black poets, here are some books that you could start reading if you're not familiar with this canon. And that's a great way to invite people in. And so that to me is an idea of stealing the canon, that where certain ideas of canon, you know, were sort of exclusionary and hegemonic. If we steal that idea and make it into a new kind of canon, it's we're going to do the opposite of that. We're going to use canons to learn about these other cultures, to educate ourselves about experiences different from ours, and that's a good way to start. It's a start. And how do you see going to evolving or growing? Well, using I think using those books as a way to sort of point you further to where else you can go is partly it's going to enable you to have conversations with other people. Like what the folder is doing, they're they're picking books to have, you know, 
mostly book club discussions about, and you could join and talk with other people about some of these works, or you could use them as kind of um, threads to sort of point you in, in further directions. I interviewed a, a scholar called Scott Newstock for our blog, and he said, what you do, one way to read is kind of to form your own personal genealogy where you take an author that you like, right? So it could be someone that you've discovered, like the writings of W.E.B. Du Bois. And then you read the people that he read, and then you read the people who read him, right? The, the people who formed his mind, who shaped his thoughts and his interests, and all the people who show the impact he had on the world. And that's kind of the way of continuing the conversation is by forming like your own little sort of family tree canon from the people that you love. I'm trying to do that kind of thing with a uh, detective fiction right now, just reading like Sherlock Holmes and Mulkey Collins is the beginning of the genre and then trying to go from there just because I love like detective fiction. <laughs> and uh, Shakespeare gives you a lot of threads, probably too many for, for, one, for someone in one lifetime to get through, but it's definitely a way of speaking to a lot of people, including people who don't like Shakespeare and responded to him by ways of saying, here's what you left out or here's where you didn't quite get it right. That's a good way of <laughs> expanding your notion of canon too. What about your thoughts about, you know, how that's evolving too, because I think a lot of people are, maybe I'm wrong, reading less, maybe not this year, 2020, we probably picked a lot more books up than we did, than we usually do, we have a bit more time. But a lot of, you know, a lot of people are now relying on, you know, less on reading and more on social media or news or digital media. And do you think that that investigative nature as a culture, as, as people, as the thing is getting less? Because I know you're in that world and, and that's what you're passionate about. Honestly, I'm kind of jealous because I would love to do that kind of stuff as well, but there's no time in my life to be following uh, somebody's arc of their reading. But um, do you feel like that's generally becoming less and less or how, how's you, how do you feel about it being in that literature world and then with the, the world around you being perhaps quite very different? I mean, in, in some circles, like, you know, with my friends who are, you know, students, professors of literature, like, you know, they're still going, you know, because they have to, it's their job. Um, but sort of anecdotally, I know that my parents, um, who, are, who are tutors of children in, in high school and middle school, um, they see that they don't get the sense that the kids have a lot of time to read and that, or maybe that's not an activity that's high up on their list and what the, the time that they do have. And even if you're in an industry that's sort of very sort of literature focused, like there is a lot of call to be writing about your work, sharing about your work and, you know, being on social media as part of your job too. So I was, I was thinking about this when I was teaching students in, in my year, yeah, teaching high school. And my goal for the seniors was, I was like, I don't know, you know, if, if Antony and Cleopatra is going to be the highest thing on their list just after they've gotten into college, although I have to say they did a wonderful job. But I thought my goal for this semester is to make them want to keep reading books for pleasure. So we're, I'm just basically going to try to find that like sweet spot where I'm saying, we want to find ways of analyzing texts that's going to make them more fun to read. Because if you're an English teacher, you hear this idea that studying a book makes you hate it. So trying to figure out what to look for in a text that can make you see what it's doing that's just kind of cool. Like I, I like to watch Game of Thrones and think about the parallels between the scenes. Like, you know, we, we've got two scenes of betrayal by father figures juxtaposed next to each other. And what does that tell us about this theme? And that makes it more fun to watch, I think just being able to just get that little sort of starting level of analysis that makes you feel like you figured something out and you understand something better that's interesting to you. So I really build that into the core of my teaching approach with these seniors. Let's try to find different ways of looking at texts that make them fun. And so I would just encourage anyone who's in, in a position to be 
writing about literature, teaching it, sharing it, or about the arts in general, to, to have that kind of aim in mind. Um, here's what you can look for that's going to unlock some of the secrets about how this cool thing works that will make it more fun for you to sort of participate in. Yeah, active participation rather than just being fed the TV show or fed the book, right? And people like to do that. You know, there's a lot of people, you know, blogging, writing, you know, Reddit's constantly all the time saying, here's what I saw, here's what I found. Did you guys see that too? And it doesn't have to be about literature. You can do that about music, films, television. I think anything that gets your brain thinking in that way and then even better sharing it with other people is wonderful. Getting kids to read, that's the thing, right? <laughs> if they want to take that skill and realize that they can do that with books too, that is wonderful. I just wonder if like, I mean, I am, I want to say I read a lot. I don't know if I read a lot, but I definitely read more than the average, I think. But is reading books the way to go? Like definitely, I don't know if last year I read 25 books, 10 years ago, probably I would have read 35 just because the the equivalent now, I read them on articles, blog posts, uh, listening to podcasts. I'm not reading, but I am consuming this information so once again maybe we're stealing the canon and maybe we are approaching literature and the written text in a different way that seems really likely and that's kind of as you know if we're making podcasts that's part of what we're hoping for of course is that people are willing to expand what they take in with their minds from what they read to what they uh hear and so i guess it goes to this question of is that is that literature is it just as good well it depends on like what do we want literature for? What do we want any of our arts for? And I think this was a question that you had, had suggested we think about too, um, especially coming out of the year now of, our, of the pandemic, like when the arts industry is suffering so much, like why is this industry important? What do we want from it? What do we need from it? So thinking about that can help us address your question. Why do, what are we taking in? Is that art? What is it doing for us? I'd be happy to speak to that. I'd be interested in, in hearing your thoughts about this too, being very close to the industry. Well, I think we, we I don't know, I tried to avoid getting political, but although I believe in in art for art's sake and, and beauty for, for itself, I also believe that art doesn't have to be beautiful and whether you want it or not, art is going to be political because Either you make a statement or you decide not to make a statement and therefore you're making one. I also believe in art as a way of expression, more so than a way to communicate, in the sense that I am going to express what I feel and that doesn't mean that you are going to understand how I feel. You might, but not necessarily. And I think we go back to what you were, or we were talking about Shakespeare, right? Like, what is the interpretation I have that I don't particularly enjoy it as much as I would enjoy maybe the short stories Cortázar or Cervantes, right? And that, that might be a language thing or a cultural thing. I don't know. But going back to the arts, I don't know. I don't, I don't think the arts are set to a medium or a technique or a way is just the way we as humans express and how the other human connect through it, whether it's the same idea or not. And maybe they don't connect at all. Maybe they're just connect with someone else. But I don't know. What's your take on it? 
I think the words you used about expression and interpretation are really important because there's some of the things that you were talking about earlier about reading articles or podcasts, like these, these can be things that we learn from that make our, our brains work that we, you know, discuss with other people that we're bonding with other people about it. What makes those different than the arts? Those are all great functions that art can perform too. But I think you're right. There's this additional thing about, as we were saying with Shakespeare, the interpretation, the role that's there, that art isn't making an argument the way a great piece of journalism might be making an argument. It's expressing something and it's for you to feel it, understand it, interpret it. And not agreeing with it sounds like kind of the wrong way of, of putting it, but understanding it, being moved by it, being affected by it, feeling challenged by it. It's those kind of less immediately sort of analytical intellectual responses, though that's part of it. It's this way of experiencing the, yeah, that that expression that that's something different there, and that gives you that freedom of of interpretation of what are you going to to do with this. And a lot of the art that I like, I feel does that for me because if if you were to like try to paraphrase its argument, I'd say well, I don't agree with the argument. I love the play Coriolanus, and if you say well, it does make an argument about what a what a terrible human being Coriolanus is, I'd be like well I. <laughs> I mean, maybe, but that's not what I feel when I'm watching it. That's not what I love that play. Part of the reason I love it is because I love it in spite of the fact that I know that there's something going wrong here. I feel that way about Julius Caesar too. And that's why I feel like yeah, I, I can't look away. I can't get rid of this because I'm still trying to piece out and understand everything that it could mean. And that just tells me that there's something really important there that I have to keep going back to that I'm never done with. And and I think that's what I really love about about Shakespeare, the sense that, yeah, I'm not going to be I'm not going to be done with it. I'm not going to use it up. I'm not going to figure out all that it's had to say and then say, okay, like got that, move on, next thing. It just tells me that there's something important there that just as a person I have to be always, always thinking about. And again, that's not <laughs> that's not all art is or all it can do, but I think that's something that I particularly felt about this year, about why even painful art and tragic art is still something that I really want to see and to be with. I mean, I think for, you know, arts in general, whatever iteration it may be, is a reflection of its society and therefore we can look back over the history and read what happened in 1823 or whatever, but it's the arts that, that, that show us how people felt about those things. And it's by consuming that history or consuming that art, whatever iteration, whether it be pleasant or not, we start to see the world in different ways. And I think that's the gift of art is, is to be opening and exposing yourself to a different way of looking at the world, not just as facts and your interpretation on it, but other people's thoughts and visions on that. And I love that because when you start to open your, you know, like you said, with the various iterations of how different countries interpret Shakespeare and, and how it's been evolved, but also why if through a colonialism thing, you've started to understand the construct and that feeds where you are today. And because, um, like you said, in, in 2020, we've had to sit there and go, okay, I'm just going to think about everything that I've been doing for the last five, ten years because I've got the time to sit down and reflect on that in this context. And in that time when you can look at the arts, you've got the time to consume and see other people's point of view and then um, create your own uh, view of life within that. And I, and I, you know, arts has been a part of my life since I was a child and 
I think one of the biggest influences in the way that I see the world is through visual art because I was a big fan of visual art in my teens. And even just the way that I see something and frame something in my mind, whether it be a photograph or a picture or something that I'm looking at in nature, I automatically frame that from an artist's point of view. Like I look at it in a frame and, and if you see the way that I take photos, I see it. Like it might be a tiny flower and a big ugly wall, but if you take it in the right frame, it looks beautiful, right? And so in my mind, consciously, I'm always looking for beauty in things around me, despite not always being in the most beautiful place. And so that feeds me. And, and that's why I have such a passion for the arts is because whenever you're exposed to it, and whenever you're reading about it, you're seeing other people's point of views. And that can only make for a better existence, really, I think. Um, and 2020 is a good time for us to look at things from a different point of view, which is what arts do. Absolutely. That is so beautifully, that is so beautifully put the idea that art will make you see other people's perspectives and then give you different perspectives with which you see and that you look at things differently. Yeah. And I've been feeling like, you know, after reading King Lear and seeing different productions this year, like the, the line from the play where he, he says, I have, t- I've taken too little care of this. And that's one of those lines that you could, you could pull out and let it echo in all different kinds of ways. And I think about all of the people around the world who are suffering right now in ways that didn't seem possible at, at one point to imagine, right? What am I doing about this? Like, not enough. I've taken too little care of this. And those perspectives like the what you fill your mind with those become the things that become available to you to see with and finding great art is partly I guess maybe a question of what perspectives do you want to give yourself to see with and what structures your purpose then you know obviously everybody everybody in those arts have that purpose so then what becomes yours and and that's a fascinating thing too because I think it's really important to have a purpose in life, right? Otherwise, people can become lost. And and what what is that loss when people have lost their job or lost their structure and their society, everything that keeps themselves busy in 2020? What's left? Who are you when you don't work? Who are you when you're not a mother? Who are you when this happens? And and that has that challenges you as an individual. And and I think that's. Finding who you are when all of the the white noise is gone is really important. And arts can help you find that, I think. Absolutely. And just personally, um, at the moments in my life when I felt most displaced, most kind of not not sure in the moment, like who I am or what I'm doing, it's been arts and, and access to arts and arts to communities that's really helped me feel like, oh yes, now now I know who I am and what my purpose is and in a way that can make me feel like like that can stave off those kind of worst places to be is when you feel like, yeah, I still got my purpose and I'm still lucky enough to have a way that I feel like I can at least contribute something towards it. Mm. That's what we need to find out about to be or not to be. Or to be or not. <laughs> <laughs> this is important to me right now. It's part of our question of existence right now. Shakespeare needs to answer this. <laughs> well, after all the, uh, you know, all the cultural capital we've thrown at him, he could at least do us the favor of solving that for us. Ex- exactly. Explain yourself, Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the, what would you say is the most thing that you like about your job? 
in this particular iteration for, you know, doing the Shakespeare for all course, I'd say it's connecting um, with other people because I've always loved working on literature, but I tell you, there are some lonely times in, in grad school where you're just in the library plugging away by yourself. And so getting to work with other people and then producing something that other people can actually like share and participate in, that is, that is wonderful right now. That is a gift. And uh, from your perspective of how the arts work and um, to an extent live entertainment, what do you think it's important for us to strive for or to change on the way how, how we work and operate? So my hope in this immediate moment is um, that when we come out of the period of you know the pandemic and the lockdown, God willing soon, um, that we will take the right lessons from this period. And those lessons should not be like, oh, you know, well, we'll just let whatever theaters survived on their own, we'll, you know, let them keep going. Like, no, we need to like keep investing in the arts, but also not, you know, go too far in, in a certain direction and say like, oh, you know, like online life replaced real life during pandemic and let's by god let's get rid of that oh i never want to be in another zoom call again um god willing i i think that there is actually a lot of great stuff that we can take away from the way that artists have so you know bravely and energetically found new ways to share what they have online i hope that we can keep some of that going it's been really inspiring to see what online productions can look like um how excited people get just to watch like a live streaming of something on youtube and be able to talk to each other about it, it, it it's thrilling to turn on an rsc program and see you know greg duran talking to ian mckellen like live you know here in my living room that there are so many ways that we can communicate and, and be together with each other and share what we have in ways that are sort of Know, low overhead costs and relatively easy and and so much fun so exciting through these platforms that I hope the arts industry will continue to make the best use of these things um, after the period of pandemic is over at the same time as really investing in and sustaining live arts as well. How can people reach out if they have more questions about Shakespeare? <laughs> I'd love for people to reach out with their questions about Shakespeare. So we're at www.shakespeareforall.com and we're at shakes for all uh, on Twitter. And yeah, we'd, we'd love to hear from you. We have a blog that we are opening to, you know, all, you know, fans and enthusiasts or challengers of Shakespeare, inviting people to write and submit pieces for us. We hope that everyone will, will feel free to do that. And we'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining us today, Maria. I have learned a lot about Shakespeare and I admire your work and uh, your craft. So thank you. I admire what you guys are doing with this podcast. And thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for taking me on my crazy idea. <laughs> <laughs> It's a pleasure. We would love to hear from you, our listeners, on who you would like us to feature on this podcast or what topics fascinate you. There is a link in our podcast description where you can send us your requests and guest nominations. Theatre Art Life provides regular monthly webinars and podcast episodes for free. If you have the means, donations can be made via a link in the podcast notes. We would be thankful for any support you can give us. You can learn more about Theatre Art Life, the global media site for entertainment, at www.theatreartlife.com. And you can follow us on all social media platforms. 
We want to thank David Sire for composing the music for our podcast. We are your hosts, Anna and Anna, and this is the Theatre at Life podcast. <laughs>